The big difference in architectural practices these days, I think, is that whole disruption issue and the technological uh, impact that is uh, having on all of us. For this episode, Ben Lawney, Senior Associate and the Education Lead with PTID, continues his conversation with Richard Leonard, Director at Hayball, as we delve further into Richard's journey into architecture. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralises your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. I just want to kind of take a step back now and talk a bit more about the about the business and how Hable have grown. You're a you know a, a national practice. How do you manage your sort of offices together? We're a national practice in the sense that we are Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. And I suppose you know at the end of the day, that's seventy percent of the population of Australia along the eastern seaboard, and that's most of the work. We've been, well, you know, in Melbourne since uh, the early 80s and in Sydney and Brisbane have only come in in 2015, 2016. So mm-hmm. they're, they're fairly new but quite uh, sta- stable and emerging um, studios in themselves. We always knew in a sense that you reach a fork in the road in your own city. Mm-hmm. You have to make that decision, well, is this our market and are we happy with that? Or do we have the option and the willingness and the energy to look elsewhere and to uh, take our skill sets elsewhere? The beginning point for us was, well, two things. Firstly, to say we need to expand our practice because we felt that growth was a good thing for us. We mm-hmm. felt that uh, you know we, we could see opportunities. And it's another way, I, I think, again, of getting that stability in a practice where you're just not reliant on one locality and mm-hmm. you know a few um, sectors of work. We made that decision, firstly, to go into Sydney, and particularly on the basis of what we perceived as a skill set that we had in high-density residential. Yep not being done the way that Melbourne did it in Sydney. Sydney had a very different market. We thought, well, look, we can really contribute to that market. Mm -hmm. We set up shop there and uh, with a very few uh, people in a small practice in Piermont, Mm -hmm. a small office. What quickly happened, though, is that we fell into some education work, fell in in the sense of we had connections in the New South Wales market. And so all of a sudden, the the education work started to step into Sydney, which has driven a lot of their growth. In Brisbane, we were really dragged up there in a sense by a particular client. We were working with Lend-Lease at the time, doing a major development in the West End of Brisbane. Ultimately, Lend-Lease said, look, you really need to be here. Mm -hmm. So we set up a a small contingent to undertake that particular project. But again, we saw the opportunity to expand into other areas. So at the moment, uh, Nationally, we're just over 160 staff, mm-hmm. most of which are still in Melbourne. I guess we have about 25, 30 in Sydney and about 10 in Brisbane. 
So you've now got Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, and that obviously gives you a, a strategic advantage to balance out some of your workload, to ride through some of the bumps in each of the cities. Do you have a, a sort of a pooled resource that you can all draw on as officers, or do the officers operate relatively independently? No, our philosophy, Ben, has been to provide one practice, uh, a scenario of one practice, but uh, three studios. Mm-hmm. So the concept is to um, give each of the studios uh, as much uh, latitude as they can, but but really obviously bring them under a single umbrella, sing- single culture, and to uh, have a single support system. Yep. We'll see how that evolves to some extent. You know, architectural practices, I think, are under continual evolution. Absolutely. But uh, from our point of view, it's it's a good model. You know, it's always constant work trying to get that um, three studios knitting together. Yep. You know, so far, so good. Can you share with us some of the strategies that you've implemented in terms of achieving that? Yeah, well, I, I guess there's two things. And one is the obvious, you know, technological connections and yep. using all the same systems and getting that interconnectivity, which is really fundamental. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's the huge shift that we've been able to see, particularly in the last decade, yeah. with technology enabling us to, to work anywhere, anytime, anyhow, to some extent. Despite all the technical hitches that we still all experience, it, it really does work well from a technological connected point of view. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, having a you know, simple example of, you know, a single server, et cetera, you know, serv- yep. servicing the, the whole, you know, BIM infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. I think the, the second thing, though, is really much more important. And that's how do you generate a single culture? You know, what really made you successful in the first place? And then how you translate that elsewhere, elsewhere in two ways. Firstly, in the sense of the office culture, but how it also is relevant to the particular market that it's in. You know, despite us being one nation, you know, we're we're different in each particular locality. And Sydney is a very different market to Melbourne. They do things differently. The same with um, Brisbane Mm -hmm. and the same with, you know, if you go to far north Queensland, they'll say they're very different to the southerners in southern Queensland. So, you know, I think it's being aware of those things and having um, each of the studios enough latitude to be able to work uh, within that scenario. And do you have, um, you know, an operating rhythm where you share cross-platform or you all get together, does the practice as a whole have an annual event, for example? We have had the annual events, although I think that's probably getting a bit unwieldy. Mm. We try to connect up with the technology and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, getting the the practices, the studios uh, connected in that way. Ultimately, and it's an interesting thing, and I think we're all learning this as we go through uh, the digital age, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately you can't beat the face-to-face, yeah. particularly in architecture, which is it's a bit like getting the fat pen out and the yellow trace. <laughs> you know, there's some things that don't disappear. Yep. I think we're struggling with that mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, talking with our colleagues in other practices, I know that that's a similar sort of problem. Yeah. Uh, so ultimately, it means you you do have to get the interconnections happening on a personal level between yep. the studios. It means a bit of travel. It's a bit of an expense, but it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, what we're finding also is that 
it's important to try to get that working also at the lower levels in the office. You know, it's just not the directors or the, the senior associates, etc. travelling. You're trying to get that interconnection between all levels of the practice wherever possible to make it that one practice. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think is unique about the people and the culture at Habel? Oh, gosh. Um, unique is, I hate to use that word, it's a... Uh, you know, it's bandied around as though you are completely different to anybody else. So what we try to invest in that I think is perhaps a, a differentiator from our point of view is heavily in, investing in our culture and trying to build up, um, you know, the things that are important to us, are, are a robust discourse within the office. Mm-hmm putting the procedures around that to facilitate engagement at all levels in the practice. And I'll give you an example in, the, in a moment. But also building up, um, you know, the career paths of people and, and putting yep. a strong investment in that, which is really important, particularly for the Gen Xs. Mm-hmm. You know, we're different now than we were 20, 30 years ago. It's a different set of people coming through your practice looking for very different things. So building professional development, building up their knowledge and experience and career paths is is really important. Coming back to that example, I think one thing that we have tried to develop in our practice, so we say all architects are basically design practices. It's how you how you roll that design out and how successfully you roll it out that mm-hmm. probably differentiates, you know, the different levels of practices. So we try to say that everybody in the office is in effect a designer. If you're working on a project, whether it's co- contract administration or working at the early design phases or documentation or any of the peripheral areas working in the graphics, etc. Mm-hmm. You're part of the design yep. and you've got to see it as such. So to develop a structure around that constant review and refinement of design has been fundamental to the way we work. What we have in our practice, for instance, we call them red books. Yep. And that is uh, we have a process where throughout any project we'll have a review, pro- a regular review process, mm-hmm. which is uh, all captured in the red book. There yep. is a physical red book. But what it does do is it facilitates that constructive review of projects all along the way. Yep. Make sure you know, you know you're not forgetting the original conceptual thinking yes. many many months ago when you first develop the project. That that is being continued on as a uh, a design imperative, a design driver throughout the project. That's all captured in the red book, so we can have this history of a project. But the important part of the, the whole process is that we'll get everybody around the, the table in a Red Book session who is involved in the project and then invite some yep. critical friends, if you like, people yep. from within the office who have got nothing to do with that project. Or on the odd occasion, we've even had people from outside the practice to mm-hmm. say you've got a particular expertise in whatever it might be, development, etc. Mm-hmm. And you get them around the table and you say, well, let's have a discussion, let's have a review. We structure that on a regular basis. It's a formal thing that is part and parcel of the way we do things. That is, it's uh, you know, it's self-reflective, it's self-critical, and importantly, the best way I can think of having captured that idea is that at the end of all of that session, we all agree to the best idea. You know, we yep. all fall behind that and say, okay, that's what we do. It's, uh, it's a very um 
through a democratic process, but I imagine that it also has the flow-on effect that it that it gets a diverse range of staff engaged in projects. Do you find that that's really important, that, that level of engagement across the practice in mentoring young staff? Yeah, I, I think it is, Ben, and not all staff actually want that engagement. Mm. You know, I think you have to recognise that uh, everybody has different drivers yep. and uh, a different desire to be engaged and some really want to just get in and do a solid day's work and that's it, that's fine. But I think particularly for, you know, any architect who has been, you know, is educated through the, the whole design process, you really want to be part of it. You really want to be yep. thinking that you can make a difference and yep. have an impact and contribute. And, you know, it adds meaning to, to what you do in the, in the practice. Uh, you know, I think that's an important part of um, the experience of anybody in an office. Uh, do you play an active role in the sort of um, the hiring and uh, I guess the searching for new talent in the office? With limited uh, <laughs> responsibility, I think it's fair to say, Ben. Look, uh, we uh, many years ago, I think we did make a, a very good decision to engage specialists in the field, and that is engage them within the practice full yep. time. So we're now at a size where we can afford the uh, having uh, an HR, small HR section in the mm -hmm. office. You know, that's a, that's a true expertise to be yep. able to interview people, to understand what drives them, to understand, you know, are they a culture fit to the practice, et cetera, et cetera. So coming back to your question, do I get involved in that? Yeah. Yes, sometimes, but, but only as a sort of a guest uh, critic, if you like, in the sense that if it's someone who is interested in the particular field I'm in, yep. you know, I would be called in or a, another senior person, director, et cetera, might be called in for other sessions where you're, you know, obviously part of that assessment team. But I very much, uh, I think we all do rely on the, the expertise that the HR people bring to the table, mm -hmm. to their understanding, to their sort of uh, critical assessment. And I think many years ago, one of the things that well, I was told by OHR people that, you know, it was pretty obvious at the time, but I, I didn't quite see it that way, was, <laughs> you know, you don't really just want to keep on employing the people that you like yes, <laughs> or the people that you think, gee, they're, they're just like me. You know, they've got the same <laughs> skill sets. I could, I really like that. So it's, it's understanding that you've really got to look at it uh, critically and, um, you know, hopefully always engage people that are smarter than you. It's a really interesting thing that you reach a, a critical mass and then like getting a HR department becomes an option. But I'm kind of interested as to how you think that's helped shape the practice after you've got the HR team on board. Oh, it's, it's a good question because I think it has had a tremendous impact in our case, you know, in the terms of really, you know, the human resource management is mm -hmm. a critical part, particularly in the creative industries. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're a complex bunch. And, you know, to harness that creativity and keep it focused and keep it happy and, you know, keep it rolling is an expertise. And I think, uh, you know, as I say, going back several years ago, we, I think we made that good decision to say we need those uh, skill sets to be in the office all the time. And it's constant work. Absolutely. And architects, you know, generally are not skilled in that area. And have you seen a very, like a very direct change in, for example, you know, staff retention has increased or also, you know, getting the right people to start with 
Has it been dramatic? I think it's been very discernible. I, you know, I couldn't give you the facts and figures, Ben, yeah. but you know, I, I think without any shadow of a doubt, that's been significant benefit in terms of, you know, heading off problems before they happen, being aware of those sorts of issues, yeah. being able to manage things on the fly. It's just not about hiring and firing. It's a, you know, the the main part of the project, of course, from an HR person, yeah. is uh, you know, maintaining that continuity, maintaining people being satisfied, fulfilled engaged yeah yeah we're all humans and you know we have different needs so yeah it's a full-time job not something that i would like to personally do myself but (laughs) you know it's it's a real skill set the tempo of technological change and enterprise disruption will never be this slow again From here on, everything gets more hectic and all-consuming as transformational drivers, turbocharged by digital networks, converge. The Business of Architecture and Design conference will provide you with an understanding of the seismic shifts occurring in the built environment. On the 11th of November, at the Parliament of New South Wales, you'll hear from leaders who are at the forefront of changing the way projects are procured and delivered. You will network with over 200 of Australia's leading practitioners and leave the day with an intimate understanding of how to prepare for the future. Do not miss out. Book now at australiandesignreview.com and click on the conference tab. I'm interested then in whether um, Habel have taken a, a proactive approach to sort of gender and diversity within the practice. We certainly have been, and, you know, I think this is one of the big shifts from our industry in particular, but, uh, you know, society in in general and the realisation that you need to embrace diversity Mm -hmm. and engage it really, really strongly. So, for instance, what we've been involved in recently is a program called Male Champions of Change. Yeah. This is a really interesting initiative that was started in the, the wider business world a little while ago. And, you know, companies like Qantas, for instance, are on board. Yep. And there's probably just over a handful of architectural practices that have signed up to it. It's quite a process. Male Champions of Change uh, has been a, a pretty interesting process from our point of view in really analysing how we do things currently, mm-hmm. what all of our, and we've interviewed all of our staff, you know, what, what they're looking for and in trying to engage with that diversity. The outcomes of that, coming out of that self-analysis, was really, you know, understanding that from a cultural perspective, we were doing things pretty well, mm-hmm. you know, across the, across the board, but we could see uh, improvements along gender lines. Mm-hmm. We've taken that into a a sort of formalising the outcomes into our policies and procedures. But to give you three examples, for instance, where male champions of change really has impacted, we have a pledge that we've made, which is called a panel pledge. Yes. And that means that if we as architects, as we often are, are are invited onto a a, a panel, if that panel doesn't have gender balance we either withdraw, ask the panel to be changed mm-hmm. or amended, mm-hmm. and then we can participate. But it's, you know, it's, it's, that's a fairly strong statement to it say is. that across the other side of the table, unless you have that uh, gender equality, that we can't be part of it, mm-hmm. regrettably. So, it, you know, it forces change for them too. 
So that's that's really making a statement, and I think that's a, a you know a great example. We run a lot of forums as a practice, mainly for professional development or for uh, you know promoting discussion on certain areas. So all of those forums, we say, bring your kids. Yep. You know, so you know, just making it part yeah. of the invitation, if you like. And what the listeners won't know is Ben Loney <laughs> has seven of these monsters. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd have to be careful about your... I know. Uh, I could make a big difference in the forums. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's that's an important statement to make to people to say it's just not you we're inviting. It's, it's saying, okay, you know, bring your kids, bring your partners. I think another one is... Um, Particularly with our Sydney studio, we've had the benefit to to redesign that in the past couple of years to make it family friendly. Yep. And by that, for instance, we've got kids' furniture in there. We've got, you know, all the things that kids need. So it's just a great part of the practice to have a little area for kids to be embraced and welcomed. A lot of clients have kids. So, yeah. you know, that's that's something that we can accommodate quite, uh, quite easily and, in fact, do. So... I suppose the fourth thing that is really important is uh, really being aware of the flexible work arrangements. And we've always been engaged with that. But the Male Champions of Change Change program has certainly really focused us on how to uh, refine that, to to, to widen the bandwidth of it, if you like, in the sense of really being able to accommodate, um, you know, people's uh, particular requirements at particular times in their their life, whether they're male, female. It's a really um, progressive approach that it sounds like you're taking there. Have you just fumbled your way through that, tried things, changed them, or have you had somebody who's really assisted in in showing a way forward for the practice? It's been a collective decision, Ben, and uh, look, we've, I, I guess we've all, always been in that mindset for many years. We've tried to, for instance, have uh, you know gender equity as much as we can at the director level yep. uh, and further down in the practice. You never quite get there. It's always different, but at least you've got that commitment to it and a genuine commitment. So when we heard about male champions of change, it's something that we certainly responded to and said, well, let's do this formally. And mm. I think that's the big difference. You know, you, you know, as a practice, you can put these things into to play, but to actually sign up to it, and it, you know, it means a very significant commitment from the practice across all of their, for us, uh, cr- across all of the three studios, because it changes subtly some behaviours, yep. which are really important. Absolutely. I'm interested also as to how you, how you balance workload, I guess. Um, architecture professions are notorious for being really long hours at times, uh, and I think this sometimes goes along with uh, the nature of the work. It's not a very flat, there's 40 hours of work to do all the time. It tends to be 80 hours one week and 35 the next. How have Habel approached this? Uh, it, it's work in progress forever, I I think it's one of our biggest challenges as a profession, as you would be only too well aware, uh, you know, in many instances, um, you know, practices are relied on what is not far from slave labour, you know, in the sense of particularly young students uh, being taken on board in some of the bigger practices and, you know, perhaps not treated with uh, all the respect they should have been. But it's, you know, it's part of the learning experience. Medical profession is exactly the same in terms of what has been happening, uh, particularly as, uh, you know, recent graduates. And I think uh, the architectural profession and the medical profession is is certainly realising you just can't do that. 
Now, how you manage that in a, um, you know, in a practice is, is one of our great challenges because the workload goes up, it goes down, it switches on a phone call where a yep. client rings up and says, I've got to put a delay on this or I've, we've got to, uh, you know, get this project out even yep. quicker. So I think that, you know, you're constantly the cat on the hot tin roof in, in that regard in architecture. And it's, it's uh, one of the benefits, I think, of uh, a larger practice in being able to have the bit of a, a shock yep. absorber, both within your studio, say in Melbourne, or to call upon the resources in, in other states to say, we need some help here. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any simple answer. It's uh, it's just constant work to make that workflow uh, flow as uh, s- seamlessly as possible. Do you um, consciously plan out, make a real decision about projects based on workload? Uh, yes, yes, we we try to do that, and I think uh, again, you know, architecture uh, is a bit of a monkey grip, isn't it? There's always those projects that are out there, and you, you just, I can't say no, yeah. um, and you try to go for it for better or for worse. But uh, as much as possible, yeah, it's it's trying to be more judicious, I think, and we certainly have processes, you know, stop go processes that we yep. have put into place that are are trying to make those judgments and be respectful of um, you know the service you can provide and mm-hmm. and what that may do to your staff and you know can they absorb it uh, etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah that's that's constant work it is i'm interested in in what do you think Habel will be doing in 5 years that perhaps you're not doing now i don't know i i really i know what we will be doing it's pretty hard to say what we won't be doing i think you you can say that there's a constant trajectory that we're all on, but the big difference in architectural practices these days, I think, is that whole disruption issue and the technological uh, impact that is uh, uh, having on all of us. Mm-hmm. My guess is that we will be doing more front-end work and less of the back-end work because I think that's the way that the industry is heading. Yeah. That is, it's more of the you know creative problem-solving that mm-hmm. is the value that architects have. But are we going to do the, the back-end production? Uh, maybe less so. That's certainly a, a direction I can see constantly emerging. Mm-hmm. We often use this in the context of, you know, schools, you know, we're, we're briefing schools, for instance, with libraries. And the question that we always ask schools, and you'll know it very well, is why do you need a library? Yep. You can fit a library on an iPad since 2010. That's when iPads came in. Disruptors like that are happening. I don't think the disruptors will, you know, happen quickly in architecture. Like five years is very short time. It is. And, you know, a, a typical project will take two or three years to, to roll out, sometimes yeah, way sometimes, more. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's an extremely short time span in the, uh, the way that architecture works. But um, there's no question about we're all seeing these uh, changes and documentation being, you know, automated or done overseas. The impact of, of VR coming in on the way we represent images, yep. the way that we can work basically 24-7 with the technology that we have and what that means in terms of projects being developed. I think, you know, BIM is obviously in its uh, infancy in, in, in many ways, but the way that that can be transported over to you know, the digital model transported over to the constructors yep. and built from 
from that sort of technology is all going to fundamentally continue to change the way we work. And I just want to reflect back on something you mentioned at the start there about architecture service becoming more about the front end and the creative and and less, I guess, about the documentation of the idea. What do you mean by that? I, I think the best way to capture that is that Tom Friedman, I think it was, about 10 years ago, wrote a book called The World is Flat. And he was talking about the disruptors that are affecting all of us. Mm-hmm. To me, it, it, it was a game changer from my point of view, because you think about it in terms of your own children. You yep. know, what is their future? They finish school. Where do they go? What are the jobs they're going to get? Friedman made the point that um, the things that won't change are the localised skills, Mm -hmm. the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. He said, you know, they'll always be on the the, metaphorical corner. Uh Things, the specialised skill sets like brain surgeons, et cetera, you know, he said that they'll still be be there. But the things that will be necessary as skill sets in the 22nd century are things around, you know, the great communicators, the mathematicians, uh, the mashers, you know, the Steve Jobs of the world, et cetera, et cetera. He listed out about 10 of these uh, skill sets that would be required, a lot of which are actually the skill sets of architects, you know, in terms of being creative, being collaborative, being, you know, being able to bring those skills of design thinking on board to to, to communicate. So I think we're well set, you know, from the sort of the base skill sets, but what we'll be doing will be very different, will continue to be very different in the way we deliver those skills. So coming back to, you know, the front end work, I think it's, you know, the computer's haven't taken over yet the ability to break open planning problems or to yeah. come up with that creative edge that defines architects from doodlers, if you like. You know, yes. I think we've yep. still got those skill sets that we can bring to the table, as far as I can see. And I think ultimately that will obviously be diminished or changed or empowered by the use of technology. Thanks for listening to this episode. Join us next time for the final episode with Ben and Richard. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage, And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.